It's great to see all of you this morning. I want to give you a little warning before we start the message. Somehow in the translation of the message notes getting printed, if you use message notes, things got shrunk. So if you use message notes, I'm going to warn you right up front, you're going to need to write real small uh, this morning. So there's your warning. And speaking of warnings, Shut Sports is a major supplier of football helmets for the National Football League. Any football fans here? Let's go Vikings this, this day today, right? Amen. Yeah? Yeah? On their uh, website and inside of each helmet, there is a warning label. Let me read this warning label to you. It says, warning, no helmet system can prevent concussions or eliminate the risk of serious head or neck injuries while playing football. And it goes on to say, to avoid these risks, do not engage in the sport of football. (laughs) That's a pretty good warning. And the truth is, we have been learning in this series in 2 Timothy called Endure, that we have been given a warning as well. And the warning has been repeated week after week, and I want to start again this morning by saying it to you on your notes there. Times of testing will come, that is the warning throughout the entire Bible, for the life of the believer. Times of testing will come. When you sign up for a life with Christ, times of testing are going to come. So, we must be prepared to endure. This warning is going to be made clear once again in the passage we're looking at this morning. In fact, sandwiched right in the text that we're going to be unpacking together are probably the clearest statement we have in the entire Bible about this warning. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. Let's read those words out loud together there on our notes. It says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus confirmed this warning to his disciples, that's us if we choose to follow him, in John 15, 20, when he said these words. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And throughout the New Testament letters, many of which were written by Paul, we get warning after warning. Another example in Philippians 1.29 here, Paul writes the church of Philippi, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So there's no doubt about this reality, about this warning that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, of course, the key words in that verse, I hope you notice them there, are what? Those who want to live a godly life. Those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. I was reading John Stott this week. I know Jeff mentioned him uh, last week. And this was a real helpful thing he said to me about this warning of persecution and what it means to live a godly life. So helpful, I put it up on the screen for you to follow along as I read this explanation. He writes, It is important to notice the situation in which Christ here told his followers to expect persecution. He envisaged that they would be both in the world, living among godless people, and at the same time, not of the world, living a godly life in Christ. Those who are in Christ but not in the world are not persecuted because they do not come in contact and therefore into collision with the potential persecutors. 
Those who are in the world but not in Christ are also not persecuted because the world sees nothing in them to persecute. The former escape persecution by withdrawal from the world, the latter by assimilation to it. It is only for those who are both in the world and in Christ simultaneously that persecution becomes inevitable. Those are some powerful words, aren't they? Today, most of us don't face outright persecution for being a Christian. However, we should not assume that these warnings don't apply to us. As John Stott said so eloquently, way better than I could ever say it, essentially, if we choose to stand up and live for Christian virtues in this world, we can expect some opposition. We can expect some sort of opposition. In fact, if you were here last week, Jeff did a great job showing us, listen, we are at war. When we choose to receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're declaring war on a very real enemy, aren't we? His name is Satan. And he is going to do everything in his power to get us to falter. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to use opposition. He's going to use persecution. Now, Satan's not so concerned about the nominal Christians. What he's really concerned about are the people that John Stott mentions there, those who are living a godly life right here in this world. I love, though, how Jeff also explained last week that even though persecution and terrible times may come, they're not something we need to be afraid of. Our God is much more powerful than Satan. Amen. They are, however, something that we need to be prepared for. And starting this week, thank goodness, because this series has started to get a little bit heavy, huh? Every week, endure, times of testing are coming. Starting this week, we're going to get into some of the ways that we can actually prepare ourselves to endure for these times of testing. God has not left us on an island. It's not us against Satan. He's equipped us with some powerful resources right here at our disposal. Isn't that good news? It was, I was starting to get a little bit depressed in this series, to be quite honest with you, because I keep thinking, oh man, times of testing are coming, times of testing are coming. What am I going to do? And I was uh, watching a movie with our kids the other night called Ice Age, Continental Divide. I know, very highfalutin stuff right there. And there's this scene in this movie that just struck me, kind of how I was feeling. There are these group of hamsters, I think they were hamsters, who are basically being enslaved by this very powerful enemy, and they decide one day enough is enough, and they're going to rise up, and they're going to fight against this enemy. And so you see this army of hamsters coming against this powerful enemy, and you're going, oh no, this is going to be a disaster, right? And that's a little bit how I feel sometimes when we go through series like this, this is going to be a disaster, However, what we don't see is behind this army of hamsters are other people who have come, other resources that they have at their disposal in order to defeat this powerful enemy. And in a similar way, we're going to see this morning, God has equipped us with some incredibly powerful resources at our disposal. So good news is coming, friends, in this series. If you're following on your notes, though we can expect persecution, God has equipped us with vital resources to endure. He hasn't left us on our own. And today we are going to see two of the resources God has equipped us with. So would you take your Bible and turn it with me to 2 Timothy. We are in chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And if you didn't bring your own Bible with you this morning, we always want to make you aware that we have Bibles available in the seat in front of you. You can find this on page 833 in those Bibles. As you're turning there, let's prepare ourselves to receive God's word in prayer again this morning. Lord. I don't know if I'm the only one who has felt the heaviness 
of what it means to live a godly life, the opposition that if it hasn't already come, will surely come. But we thank you that you haven't left us on our own, that you have equipped us. And as we think about these two things specifically today, you've equipped us with God. We are grateful. We are grateful that you have empowered us, that you are greater than even our greatest enemy. And so we place our hope in you this morning. Together, all God's people said, amen. Now to set the context, if you remember from last week, Paul essentially warned Timothy that terrible times are coming. And he was specifically talking about some uh, false teachers who began to infiltrate the church that Timothy was pastoring, right? He said these teachers are going to teach a form of godliness, but really they're distorting the truth. So they look like the real deal, but in fact, they're not. Paul warned Timothy about these people and that they're coming. And now, starting in verse 10, it's really just a follow-up from that warning. Paul is going to equip Timothy with how to deal with these people. And look at how he starts with equipping Timothy. He says in verse 10, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Interesting. The very first resource Paul points Timothy to to face times of testing is himself. Timothy, remember me? Remember my life? Remember, my example, follow me. Now, today, these words might sound a little bit self-promotional to us, right? Why is Paul saying, follow my example? I mean, is that like arrogance here? No, no, no. Remember, Timothy was Paul's disciple. Disciple literally means to follow alongside. And so Paul is writing to his young disciple, telling him, follow alongside of my example. As this time of testing has come into your life, think back on how you've witnessed me deal with times of testing, Timothy. Remember and follow me. And friends, there's a great truth hidden here for all of us still today. And it's this, if you're falling on your notes. In order to endure, we need to be discipled by godly mentors. We need others to come alongside of us to encourage and equip us to live this godly life we've been called to live. The Christian life is not a Lone Ranger deal. I know a lot of men who want to believe it is. It's not. It's got to be done in community with others. As I look back on my life, And I'm sure, do this right now in your own life. You can do the same thing. I know I would not be where I am today if it were not the result of God placing some very significant people in my life who discipled me. Some of them discipled me on purpose. Some of them had no idea that they were discipling me. I was simply just watching the way they live. I think especially of my time in high school, which was a very important time in my life. I had a lot of questions. Was it really worth living a godly life for Jesus Christ? God equipped me with people like my youth pastor and the counselors in our high school youth group who came beside me, alongside of me. They showed me how to live. But beyond that, God equipped me with some older high school students who had no idea that they were discipling me, but I was watching them. I was watching them live out their faith as seniors in a high school where it was very difficult to do so. And that, too, discipled me. 
This has continued to this day. I've never arrived. None of us are ever going to arrive, are we, in our sanctification process? We still need people to come alongside of our lives. I remember coming here at Cherry Hills 12 years ago, never been a pastor in my life. You better believe that Jeff mentored me in a major way. I wouldn't be who I was as a pastor today if it weren't for Jeff. Some of it was on purpose. Some of it was just watching him deal with people and deal with difficult situations and persons. Think back to your life. Is that not true? That you can think of people who have encouraged you in your journey along the way. And so what this says to me is that we need to, if we want to endure, it's imperative. It is imperative for us to find the right spiritual leaders to follow. Because none of us can do it alone. So the question now becomes, like, what should we be looking for when it comes to a godly mentor? Well, in these verses, Paul mentions a number of things. We're going to kind of pull this apart, go real slow here. I want to talk about six things we should look for when it comes to mentors. Number one, we need to be discipled by godly mentors who open their lives for all to see. Open their lives for all to see. Paul said in the very first part of verse 10, you know all about me. Timothy I've got nothing to hide. I opened my life up to you, and I made myself completely available to you. This was true of Jesus as well, wasn't it? As a rabbi, he invites 12 disciples into his life, and they did everything with him. He opened his life completely to them. They wanted to follow after his example. This is tough for us today in an individualistic American society now, though, isn't it? We all go back to our homes and we all want our safe, comfortable, individual lives. It's just part of being American. But what I'm here to tell you is we need to be willing as the church to be more open to opening up our lives to the people around us. Now, I know as I challenge this, the the thought that kept coming to me this week is, well, I'm not ready for that. I haven't reached perfection yet. I, I can't possibly mentor someone until I've arrived That is a lie from Satan, and I believe it has infiltrated the church big time. None of you, and Jeff or myself, are ever going to arrive. It doesn't mean we shouldn't still open up our lives as mentors to other people. I want to challenge you. If you've been running the Christian race for a while now in your life, would you be willing to examine your life and look at who God has placed in your path? Would you be willing to open up your life for them? If they are willing and open to coming alongside of you, to seeing how you do things, not perfectly, but in a way that is discipling. That is how God has designed his church. Second, we need mentors who teach the truth. Who teach the truth. You know all about my teaching. And I know teachers are some of the most significant people in all of our lives, I'm sure. I, I can point to many teachers who had a huge impact. I, my communications professor, Dr. Spencer from Westmont College, marked my life for all eternity. I think of some of the preachers I respect and have looked to and learned from, like John Ortberg and Tim Keller. I've never met either of them. But they have discipled me in preaching. They have mentored me. There are many others too, but friends, here's the key. No matter how appealing a teacher may be, if he or she is not teaching the truth of God's word, we should not be placing ourselves under them. We should not be discipled by them. Paul is reminding Timothy, look, these teachers are coming in, and they're not teaching the truth, as opposed to what you know that I taught. They might teach a form of godliness, it sounds right, 
but it actually doesn't measure up with the truth of God's word. Does this still happen today, by the way? So how do we know? How do we know when somebody is teaching the truth and somebody is teaching something false? You got it in your lap right now. You have it open. We have the plumb line of Scripture that God has given us, and we measure anything any teacher is saying. I'm telling you right now, you better measure what I'm saying. You better measure what Jeff is saying. Are we teaching the truth? If we're not, if, you're not, if we're not, warn us. That's part of being the church. We need mentors, though, who will speak the truth to us. Third, we need mentors who practice what they preach. It's not just about speaking the truth. It's about living it. Paul says to Timothy, you know my way of life. You know my way of life. You know I didn't say one thing and then live a totally different thing. You know I don't preach persecution and then live in luxury and comfort. No, I'm the real deal. And he's not doing that in a self-promotional way. He's just simply saying, Timothy, I taught the truth and I've lived out the truth. And Timothy knew that to be a fact because he had walked with Paul. He had seen Paul sad and angry and happy and worried. He'd watched Paul handle difficult people and difficult situations. He had seen him studying. He had seen him pray. Paul practiced what he preached. The word for this would be called integrity. We need mentors in our lives who exhibit integrity. They are who they are in public and in private. You all know people like that. Surround yourselves with them. Surround yourselves with them. Fourth, we need people who have the chief purpose of glorifying God. If you've read through the New Testament, is there any question what Paul's purpose in life was? He wanted to do the will of God and finish the work God had given him to do no matter what. His life was not his own to live. Timothy traveled with him. He must have been convinced of this pretty quickly, don't you think? Here was this tireless missionary with a single-minded focus. Bring the gospel. Bring the gospel to others who don't yet know it. What's your purpose? What's your purpose in life? Is it that you become less so that Christ can become more? Or is it that you become more? We know the difference between those two, don't we? We can see people who are living no longer for themselves, but they're living for Christ and his glory. And I want to tell you, find them. Find those kind of people. Place yourself under them. Learn from them. Fifth, we need people who bear fruit. Look at what Paul said. Timothy, you know all about my faith, patience, love, and endurance. Does, do some of those words sound familiar? Those are the fruit of the Spirit. And where do they come from? They come from a deep, connected relationship with Christ. And when you look for someone, you look for someone who bears that kind of fruit, who you know they've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. And I want to be with them. Finally, we need mentors who are willing to suffer for the gospel. Here we have been week after week talking about, hey, we're going to be persecuted if we really want to live a godly life. Hey, Paul's not telling us something he didn't endure himself. He was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. In fact, he gave three examples there, right, of three cities. You can read about uh, those examples in Acts. I mentioned them in your uh, notes there. But he's just reminding Timothy, hey, you remember those three times? 
Remember those three times when you witnessed me being persecuted, my willingness to suffer for the gospel? Now, Timothy, think about your present situation and the times of testing that have come into your life. Remember how I endured through those persecutions. Follow my example as I follow Christ, Paul would later say. Friends, it bears repeating that mentoring, that discipleship is not just about imparting information to someone. I'm not discipling you right now, I'm teaching. Discipleship, as you've heard, is caught more than it is taught. And Timothy was able to catch from Paul's life and his example, an example of true godliness. Someone living out a godly life. And more often than not, if we're honest, a lot of times that happens most in times of suffering, doesn't it? I I know for me, I've watched many people, including many people in this church who I admire, I respect, I look up to people who, not perfectly, but who exhibit these characteristics. And I watch them during times of testing, and I go, man, I can learn from that. I can learn from that. And I think Paul is encouraging Timothy, hey, I know you're going through it right now. It's hard. But look to my example. Look to Jesus' example on the cross and follow me. And how could Timothy, reading this, not be encouraged as he thinks back and he remembers his mentor's life? Friends, these are the kind of people we should be filling our lives with. Not perfect people, but people who are seeking to honor God. So I'll ask you a real simple question. Are you? Are you filling your life with these kinds of people? Who is your mentor in the faith? Who is discipling you? Here's another question. Who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? Perhaps you've heard this question asked this way. I put it on the notes here. Who is my Paul and who is my Timothy? And I am not afraid to say that all of us should have at least one of both. It is how God designed the body to work. It's called discipleship. We pass on what we've learned to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation. I'll say this, if you are a parent here in this room, guess what? Whether you like it or not, you are discipling your children. Are you not just talking about these things? Are you actually living them out? If you're a a part of our church family, I'm going to ask you and challenge you, are you part of any sort of Christian community? Sunday school, life group, one-on-one relationships, any sort of Christian community where you meet regularly with other Christians to be encouraged and discipled. I have talked to a lot of men about this. This is like an urgent need for men and younger men, high school men uh, throughout the church. And over and over again, I just see this resistance to this idea. We want to be the Lone Rangers in our faith. Part of it is because we're just embarrassed. Because you know what it actually takes? It takes, hey, that guy I respect. I'm going to go ask him out to coffee. That's embarrassing. It's like we're going on a date. No, we're not going on a date. You're placing yourself under someone, trying to learn from them and grow from them. It's how God designed the church, the body. We are the body of Christ. So suck it up. Suck it up, man. It's not something to be embarrassed about. It's something to pursue. It's something to pursue if we truly want to grow and endure in our faith. But godly mentors aren't the only resource God has equipped us with in order to endure. Look at what else Paul says, starting in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, 
Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Pause. How would Timothy have known the Scriptures since infancy? We know from other parts in Scriptures because his mother and his grandmother discipled him. They discipled him. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If you're falling on your notes... To endure, we need to be equipped with God's word. Or as it's called here, scripture. That is the second resource God has given us. And in these verses, which are the most important verses in the Bible about the Bible, we see two fundamental truths about scripture. We see where it comes from, what it is, and what, it is, what its purpose is. If you have a Bible in your hands right now, I'll ask you a question. What do you really believe about what you're holding in your hands? In this passage, Paul says two significant things about what that book is. First of all, he calls it the Holy Scriptures. The word holy, we sang a lot about that this morning, just means set apart for a sacred use. We sang God is holy, holy, holy. What we mean by that is he is unlike anyone or anything else. And here's the amazing news of the gospel. God calls us holy when we are in Christ Jesus. He has set us apart. For a sacred purpose. And in the same way, if you're following on your notes, Paul says scripture is holy or it is set apart as sacred. What that means is the Bible is different from every other book, even books about the Bible. Because this book has been specially set apart by God himself. Now the question at this point becomes, and I'm sure you've heard this, is that still true for us today in the 21st century? Is this book written thousands of years ago still to be viewed as holy? Or perhaps the way this question is phrased more often today is, could this book written thousands of years ago still possibly be relevant for a 21st century world? Many, both inside and outside the church, say the answer to that is no. It can't possibly be relevant anymore. Now, if you've been coming to Cherry Hills for any length of time, you know that our answer to that is Yes. Not only is it relevant, it is God's holy scripture. It always will be God's holy scripture set apart by God himself as something sacred. How could we possibly still believe this? Well, I've debated whether or not I want to get into this, but let me just make an argument with you right now. Let's reason together about this question. Could the Bible still be relevant today? Because it's a huge question for people. What people mean, I think, when they say the Bible can't be relevant anymore today is that they think the Bible should confirm to what our present-day culture says is right. In other words, am am I right here? It's not relevant because it doesn't agree with our present-day culture. So if our culture says this thing is right and the Bible says that thing is wrong, whatever it may be, we say, well, the Bible can't possibly be relevant because we're much more advanced. We live in the 21st century United States of America. Now here's the problem with that argument. Culture is always changing. Sometimes it's changing for the better. I mean, think about the medical advancements that have changed in our culture. Awesome stuff, but let's just be honest. Sometimes culture isn't changing for the better. Or think even about this. Cultures are different. The culture here in the United States is completely different from the culture in Asia and Europe and Africa. So I'll ask you, which one's the most relevant? 
Which culture is the most relevant among them? So listen, this is important. What would you think of a book that affirmed everything our culture said was right? That would be a dead giveaway that that book couldn't be trusted. In fact, that would be a giveaway that that book was not holy, that it was not set apart throughout history. What would you expect from a book that was, however, set apart as holy? You would expect at certain points it would contradict every culture on some issues, right? If it was God's eternal wisdom for all time, you would expect at some point that book is going to contradict what I think is right. So let me say it this way. The reason we can trust that the Bible is God's holy word, that it is relevant, is exactly because of its irrelevance to any particular culture. Did you get that? The reason we know the Bible is relevant to us still today is because it's irrelevant to any particular time and any particular culture. It is an out-of-time book. So it is eternally relevant. It has been set apart. And that's exactly the definition we've used for holy. Friends, Jeff is going to talk a lot more about why we can trust the Bible in a couple of months here, but here's what I'm trying to say. I don't know if this is true for you, but I don't want a word from God that affirms what I think is right. Because then that makes me the determiner of truth. And that's where we have landed as a society today. That's what people mean when everything is relative. What I need from God is a word that is eternal. A word that is free to challenge me. A word that is free to push me to live outside of myself and outside of my culture. Whether my culture agrees with that word or not, I want a book that has been set apart as holy by God. And we have been given that book. It is his holy scripture. That leads to the second thing we learn about the Bible. And that is scripture is God-breathed. Or as some of your translations say, it is inspired by God. Literally, this means the words of the Bibles we hold were breathed out by God. Now, that doesn't mean it dropped out of heaven one day in its final form. God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired real human beings who had unique personalities to write down his truth for us. This is a mystery. These thoughts weren't their own thoughts, yet they also weren't machines simply dictating what God told them to write. We believe this includes both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, a very important verse here, I I can't remember if I put it on your notes there, is 2 Peter 3.16. Peter cites the writings of Paul among the scriptures. These 66 books we have in the Bible were confirmed through a vigorous number of tests in the early church. And again, I believe Jeff plans to talk much more about this in January. But what it suggests, if this book is really breathed out by God, it suggests that the Bible isn't just a collection of stories or fables or myths or just human ideas about God. It means it's not a human book at all. Through the Holy Spirit, God has revealed his person and his plan of salvation to certain people who wrote down his message for us as truth still today. Famous preacher, Dr. William Evans, once got up in front of his congregation and began tearing pages out of the Bible. I've thought about doing that, but I knew I'd get lynched or something. And he made the point, listen, oh, you don't believe, you don't want to believe that, uh, you know, it was a virgin birth? Okay, we'll get rid of that. And he gets rid of the miracles, and he gets rid of the resurrection. He goes, what are we left with? We're left with a book of morals. And we already have a lot of those. What we need is God's book. 
breathed out by God himself. And that's what we have. This is God's book, set apart by God, inspired by God. And that leads to the second thing this passage says about the Bible, which is what it can do if we receive it that way. Notice the first thing Paul mentions. First, if you're following Scripture, leads us to salvation in Christ. Look again at verse 15. How from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is really important. We are not saved by believing in the Bible. The Pharisees believed in the Bible. We are saved by believing the Christ who is revealed in the Bible. We are saved by revealing the person who the Bible points to, Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible is instrumental in showing us that what God wanted from the very beginning was a relationship with you. He wants to commune with us as human beings. The Bible also shows us that that was made impossible by our sin. But the Bible goes on to tell us God's story, God's story of redemption, that he didn't allow our sin to keep us from a relationship with him. He pursued us. And he went so far that he sent his own son, and we read about this in the Bible who not only lived a perfect life, but he died a death on a cross on our behalf. And he rose again from dead in all power and victory. We do not receive salvation from the Bible. We receive it from Christ. But Christ is revealed in Scripture. And that really leads to the second thing Paul says Scripture is, which if you're following, Scripture is useful in our transformation process. Remember, the goal of the Christian life is to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Just cross our fingers and hope? No. We fill ourselves with the truth of God's word. That's one of the ways. Read verse 16 out loud with me again on your notes. Would you? It says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, I'm not going to get into the detailed meaning of each of those four words because the idea behind all of them is pretty simple. The Bible is helpful in our transformation process. It's a transforming book. It teaches us. It rebukes us. Amen? It corrects us. It trains us in righteousness. Have you had that experience with the Bible? Just this morning, just this morning, I was corrected By reading God's word, the Bible is like this never-ending pool that I can never reach the bottom of. It's alive. And it is useful for my transformation promise. Friends, here's why this is important. Times of testing are coming. And the only way to defeat Satan's lies is by filling ourselves with the truth of God's word. In these last days... There's going to be more and more deception, and the only way a believer is going to be able to tell the false from the truth is by knowing the truth, by filling ourselves with Scripture. So how well are you equipping yourself with God's Word? As we do every year, the last Sunday of this year, Pastor Brian uh, is going to speak on how we can equip ourselves with God's Word. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward. I need to be reminded of the power and the usefulness of Scripture in my life. As Paul concludes this passage, he closes with reminding Timothy why God has equipped us with these two wonderful resources. Why? Why, God, have you done this? In verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why has he equipped us with godly mentors and the holy scriptures? It's so we can live out the godly life. 
in this world that he has called us to live, even in the face of persecution. Or if you're following on your notes, God equips us in order to do his work in this world. And here's where this comes full circle. What is God's work in this world? It is for us to equip others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to show you a video uh, that our church did uh, this, this week. Um, this could have been done with any number of people in our church. These are two ladies right here in our church family, Emily Johnson and Amy Melton, and they are living examples of encouraging one another, godly mentoring with one another, and they're doing that through Scripture. I want you to see their story. There's no fireworks. There's nothing like that. This is a story of two regular people who are taking these things seriously. They're equipping themselves with the resources God has given them. Take a look at this. Emily and I met when we were both in grad school together. We had a couple classes together. We didn't really get the chance to get to know one another at that time. So we sort of went to three different areas. I, I went back to Springfield after I got my degree. and She then moved on to take a different position and I saw that there was a position at Memorial. I got accepted and it just so happened that there was another full-time position opening. While working in Peoria, I was offered a job back in Springfield. I declined the job and I stayed in the Peoria area. Eight months down the road, another opportunity came available at Memorial and fortunately I got a job there. And I remember my first day going into work. I saw her face and recognized her. I, got, I know her, I had class with her. As we kind of got to know each other, we were discussing, you know, how are we going to decorate our office? We both kind of had the idea of, let's find something that has scripture on it that we can sort of use to, to show others that, that we are Christ followers and that we wanted to, to kind of use that as a reminder for ourselves. And, you know, that was sort of the beginning for us as far as, you know, how we were using scripture in our day to day. I had a time where I was um, at home a lot. My husband was gone, I was coaching. And, I had a colicky baby and a two-year-old, and it was just a time where I, I needed God in my life, and um, I wasn't sure how that was going to happen, and then I had an aha moment one night, and um, I saw scripture right there on the back of a license plate in front of me um, in, in the drive through and I thought, what a, a wonderful way for God to say, I'm here with you. It was just an amazing moment in my life where I knew that that is how I'm going to endure. Last winter, it was a long winter, definitely a trying season for me. I was pretty sick. Um, I've never had a long-lasting illness of a few months, and I was going through some trying times with some relationships in my life, and I was feeling just mentally, physically weak. I think about the time that Emily sent me a picture. I was definitely very open to her um, about my winter and and she was very supportive and you know even when it was outside of work if it was just an encouraging message here or there and she had sent me a picture one day it was a rainy day and the rainbow came out and, and Johnson texted me the picture and just said you know this made me think of you you know her struggle was so different than my struggle but that we could go through it together through reading and using God's Word, which was, I think, really powerful. Scripture is so much more than just writings in this book. It's a gift, and when we actively read and pray 
in God's Word and we can communicate that with others, I think that's when the Spirit breathes on those those times and those relationships and that's when things really come to life. We all are going to face struggles, um, whether they are small or large or you know what scale they may be. How else would we endure I mean, without God's Word and with other people? I know that some of my recent struggles, if I didn't have Amy in my life and I didn't have scripture to fall back on, I don't know how I would have endured through that. So cool to see evidence of God's grace at work right here in our church. And they were able to say in four minutes what it took me 40 minutes to say. We need others. And we need scripture. We need to equip ourselves with those resources if we hope to endure in this world. So I'll ask you the question as we close. If testing comes, have I equipped myself with God's resources? Have I equipped myself with God's resources? Will you pray with me? Lord, my heart this morning is that we would have many, many more stories like Emily and Amy, who neither of them are perfect, and they would be the first to say that. And yet they are equipping themselves by rubbing shoulders with each other, by discipling each other, and by filling themselves with your Holy Scripture. God, would we be a church that raises up more and more godly mentors who practice what they preach, who live an example life, who come alongside the next generation, and who fill themselves with the truth of your word. Let us be a church that equips ourselves so that when times of testing do in fact come, we are ready. We are ready not just as individuals, but we are ready as the body of Christ. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.